Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. We have another special guest this week in Patrick Polk. Patrick is an editor at the popular Australian investment insight publication, Livewire Markets. From macroeconomics and market trends to stock-specific commentary and investment strategy, Livewire Markets provides a popular and well-respected platform for investment industry professionals to share their views and experiences in the public domain. I also want to preface this uh, interview with just just a quick uh, overview of where we want to take this. So it's a little bit different what we're running this week. This week, we've, as Tim said, we've got Patrick on with the idea that Patrick's quite involved in the whole uh, industry of investment insights. And what we really wanted to do is give you an idea of what else is out there. Uh, that It is relatively thin on the ground in Australia. So what we really wanted to look at is, is which fund managers and uh, commenters out there in the market were actually really interesting and uh, what other websites and uh, information sources there are. And so I think uh, what you'll find is that Patrick's views on that, having been in that industry and just talking about how the industry has changed over the time, is quite insightful in terms of uh, finding investment research uh, and investment podcasts in Australia. So join Nucleus Wells Head of Investments, Damien Classen, and myself, Tim Fuller, as we spend an hour with a fellow thought leader in investment media. I hope you enjoy. Today on the show, we are very fortunate to have editor of the acclaimed industry masthead, Livewire Markets, Patrick Polk. Welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Thanks very much for having me on. Lovely to have you. Okay, so uh, just as a quick bit of background uh, for, my, for our listeners, I guess, for Livewire and also a little bit about yourself to get us going. Yeah, well, uh, I'll start with Livewire and then tell you a bit about myself after that. But Livewire was founded just over six years ago by James Marley and Tom Mackay. Uh, they'd worked together in the past and they saw a bit of a gap in the market in Australia in uh, financial media. There was a lot of fund managers and professional money managers out there that wrote and shared a lot of content on a weekly, quarterly basis. And a lot of it was not getting read by anybody. Mm. You know, they release it to their investors, some of which would read it, probably most of which who didn't. Mm. But all of this effort was going into writing all this content that wasn't going to be seen. Mm. So the idea, I guess, was to put it all in one place where people could find those ideas and, you know, really get some value out of them. Uh, make it free for users, which is always nice. You know, people are always uh, very hesitant to pay up, especially when it's online. Mm, mm. Um, actually, if you'll, if you'll allow me to digress a bit, I had a bit of a similar experience myself. I'm a, uh, a keen amateur woodworker and I was buying some, uh, some equipment and some wood and a few different things for a little project. And the plan that I had for it, uh, I didn't want to spend money on the plan. It was $5. I'd spent like $150 on wood and materials. <laughs> and I was like, why are you being like this? It's $5. And it's because it's on the internet, not, mm. uh, you know, paying for content, I think, is really hard for a lot of people. So, uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's where the idea came from. And we had a, it was certainly pretty tough at first, you know, getting that initial audience and getting the initial contributors. Mm. But once, you know, once you reach a bit of, I guess, a critical size, it's, it all starts to build and to snowball from there. I came into the business a couple of years later. Uh, my background includes uh, superannuation, uh, insurance, a uh, few different, a little bit of retail banking, mm -hmm. but mainly I came into the business because I love investing and I love writing. Uh, I used to write reviews of stocks in my spare time, just for yourself. For, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and for other people too if they wanted to read them. Yeah, sure. And uh, and James saw a couple of those and got in touch, and I guess it's all history from there. All right, fantastic. So, so in terms of the, um, I guess over that six-year period, I guess what I'm what I'm interested in is a as a, I guess sort of meta commentary on on the research business is, um, we've really had this dying down of broker research as as, as you know, people have left that industry and, and regulations have sort of clamped down on that, which meant that it, broker research used to be the sort of key place for this. Uh, at the same time, we've seen all the newspapers as well. Just we are right back on in terms of all their. Um, uh, of all the journalists, you know, at the AFR and and um, you know uh, the Fairfax mastheads and, and those types of ones, and so uh, I guess what I'm interested in is uh, how much of the growth do you think is sort of associated with your competitors falling away, and and sort of 
there actually being a, a bigger need for for a sort of carefully thought out research and, and commentary versus um, I guess growing into what you think was a, a market that was already there. I think there's definitely an element of both there. Uh, it's hard to deny that the that the falling away of broker research has got to play some kind of role. That being said, broker research is generally a positive thing for us. Mm. Uh, people like reading broker research, mm. uh, particularly if you give them a big list of stocks. You know, ten stocks that we like this month mm. is you know people like reading that stuff. It's a big even article. If, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if they don't go out and buy. Uh, any of the stocks, they'll still read it mm. consistently. So um, that being said, though, I do think there was a, a, a genuine gap there that was being filled. Uh, I think we do have a slightly different model to most of the, uh, of the uh, you know, we're not trying to, we don't, ha- we're not particularly heavy on advertising. We try and keep it, you know, obviously there's got to be some advertising, mm. but we try and keep it minimal for people and give readers a really good experience. We try and focus on the reader. Mm. And I think that, you know, I hope that shines through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. And I, guess, I guess that sort of leads into the sort of second part is that um, I think as a, as a industry veteran of reading lots of research myself, um, I think the, the first thing most people who have been involved in the industry for a while is think about, okay, well, why has this person written what they've written? And so I think from a uh, when when you hear a broker research, uh, the first question is right: um, are, they, are they trying to raise capital for this company? Is there something going on in the background? Um, it, it's usually buy, 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 buy for a reason because um, that's what they're doing. They're, they're they're trying to raise capital for companies and they're trying to sell it to, to other people and and um, you know that's that's sort of their business model. Um, you read a you read a a broker sorry a, a fund manager research. And it's usually look. I've already bought this stock, and I want you to buy it as well. And or maybe I even want to sell it to you. As I need, I need to get out, and so I need someone to take the other side of this transaction. And so that's sort of the the, the first thought you always have is, um, as, as you're reading those, is right. Okay, why why do you want me to? Why are you trying to convince me to buy this stock? Uh, and then you get sort of the the companies part, where companies are obviously always trying to put a positive spin on on their part, and then journalists who sit somewhere, depending upon where they've been fed information. So I guess what uh, I guess what I'm interested in is, um, I guess it's a long-winded, long-winded question. But but the uh, the idea is that as as you are putting together these contents, I guess where are you trying to see? I guess where do you see the the conflicts in terms of doing what you're doing in terms of pushing other people's? Where do you see the line that you need to start stepping in and 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 putting editorial into there to to sort of draw out the what's really going on? I think. As a you know, as an investor and as a consumer of financial content, the first thing you need to do is accept that everybody is biased. Yep. Uh, nobody who's out there writing financial content is going to come at it from an unbiased point of view. It's mm. it's it's just about impossible. So I, I think that's a, a it's a good point to start to kind of start at. Mm. Uh, I think with all of the kind of research that you mentioned, I think there's value in it, mm-hmm. particularly in the information that it provides. Mm. I think. What you need to avoid is putting too much weight on the conclusions that they draw. So using the broker research as an example, I think with broker research, you there's often, if you look on page two, three, four, five, six, that's often where the best stuff is. Mm. Looking at the first page and, and particularly up the top left corner where there's a buy recommendation and a, and a target price, I don't mm. think there's any value in those whatsoever. And I'm sure you guys are aware there's, plenty of research that suggests there is actually not much value in those mm. that being said there's you know when, when you're a retail investor who maybe don't doesn't have the time to go out and meet with a company themselves doesn't have time to do deep industry research mm. yourself then maybe you can actually get some value out of the information that they've provided to you know back up and justify mm. their points of view um you know, with with fund well, manager, well, as, as a fund manager, I say I get lots of value for broker research. But as you said, the the value usually is in that top left corner. It's yeah, exactly. Saying, I want to hear, I want to hear what your interpretation of what management's told you, and then yeah, sort of get into that whole part about okay, are you overcooking it, or where where do you sit on the whole spectrum of yeah, capital raising, not capital raising? Yeah. Um, do I think you're independent? What have you said before? How's it changed? All that type of things. Yeah. I think it can be good to actually consider what biases the person who wrote whatever you've got has as well. You know, not just accepting that there are biases, but, you know, 
uh, as Charlie Munger always says, look at the incentives. Mm. The incentives is what, what, what drives people to action. Mm. So if, again, using the example of broker research, yeah, they're trying to raise capital. So, mm. of course, the, their incentive is to be positive all the time. Mm. Fund managers are incentivized to talk about stocks that they're already in mm. and probably stocks, let's be honest, that have gone up a bit. You know, you, you, <laughs> personally, I don't see or hear a lot of fund managers out there talking about stocks that, uh, you know, that have gone down 20, 30, 40% uh, since they bought it. I will, in a, and I'm, I'm in the greatest respect to these people, call out one fund manager, though, that does do that. And I think it's great to, to hear and see actually two that I can think of. Um, and we're going to discuss them a bit later, I think. But mm. uh, both Alan Gray and uh, uh, Forager Funds, they're probably the two... They're the two fund managers I've seen who are most comfortable talking about mistakes mm. and talking about things even if they don't even if they don't go right for them. Mm. Okay. And how does that play with the audience? Do you think? Do you think? I think people appreciate the honesty. Yeah. Uh, particularly, I know Forage is one that I've heard a lot of people talk about. You know, he's Steve. If anything, maybe he. He spends a lot of time talking about his mistakes and he even talks about the fact that other people call him out for spending so much time talking about his mistakes. mistakes. (laughs) Um, Sorry, excuse me. I'm just coming off the back of a cold. Um, But yeah, I think broadly as an audience, uh, most people appreciate the honesty Mm. that comes with talking about your mistakes Mm. and people don't like disingenuous people. One of the questions that I uh, like to ask on the podcast from time to time is to is tell me about a mistake that you've made mm. as an investor. Mm. And I find it really revealing what people talk about. You get some people who will talk about a genuine mistake, you know, something that's really gone wrong. Mm. And then you get other people who might be like, oh, you know, maybe I should have bought after pay before it went up. Oh, right. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like a job interview mistake where you swing it around into a positive or something at the end. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, very good. Uh, just a quick one on that. So from a, it's an editorial perspective as well, um, do you find that you need to maintain a sense of balance in terms of, you know, you're getting um, sort of sell side and buy side sort of coming in, no doubt stories coming in all the time. Um, do you find that at some point you need to sort of go, okay, I'm going to, I've filled my boots on uh, broker side and I need to now, you know, um, see what's available on on the manager side or something like that very much so look our our business is a bit more focused on the managers and the brokers these days but that's partly because of what you know we were discussing earlier about the decline in broker research mm. uh, but yeah we definitely try and offer people a bit of balance mm. that's and it goes beyond just looking at uh, brokers versus fund managers it also includes having a balance between Australian equities and Global equities between bonds. asset, yeah, bonds, bonds are big, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Between asset allocation and um, and stock picking, between small cap equities and large cap equities, you know, we we want to try and serve people up a balanced diet, if you'll uh, hmm. if you'll allow the analogy. I always say, you know, there's there's things like a list of stocks might be like having candy bar. Yeah, you know, it, everybody enjoys having a candy bar. Everybody enjoys reading a a list of stocks, but you probably haven't really learned anything yep. uh, from reading eight hot stocks that are going to go up. Uh, but you had fun, right? Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, some of the more in depth educational or analytical type stuff sometimes isn't as easy to to read or isn't as mm. exciting. But often that's where you find the best insights. Yep. So yeah, on I guess on all fronts we try and offer people diversity and and balance in um, you know in in what they're listening to and, and reading. Yeah, okay. and and so talking global research, obviously there's um, you know versus ten fifteen years ago, it's now much much easier to trade international stocks, yeah. and you get fund managers like ourselves as a quick plug to, to you know uh, who who are investing international stocks for for Aussie investors um, and. Economies are a lot more synced up now, so we've seen um, interest rates. You know, the interest rate cycle across you know, basically all the developed countries are, are pretty much in sync. So, um, how much, I guess, have you seen in terms of your business, and how much are you, you expect to see? Are you expecting that as a continued? You're going to need more and more international insight, and less and less Australian, or is this something 
um, you think that the, the local um, the local side of it will will always be of more interest to, to people in Australia? I think there's definitely been a significant increase in the interest in global equities and or global investing generally. Mm-hmm. I'd say probably in the last two years, maybe three years. Mm. I think it's been driven. There's a lot of forces driving that. I think you know if if you're going back. If we, if we go back five years or so ago, most investors I don't think would have even been conscious of the what is now a very well-known statistic that 2% of global equities are mm. in Australia, 98% are elsewhere. Mm. Yet, I think Australian investors still probably have in the, in the range of 30 to 40% of their portfolio on average in... in um, Local stocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but of course, you know... <laughs> Franking credits are always gonna <laughs> gonna throw a, a spanner in that, and people, I think people have a fundamental attraction to what is familiar and close to home for them. Mm. A lot of people like investing in businesses that they can see when they go down the street. Yep. So I think there will always be a strong interest in the Australian mm. side of things, but definitely a growing, and I expect it to continue to grow, especially with the you know the big the biggest businesses in the world are global consumer businesses. Mm. So people might not have been familiar with PetroChina 10 years ago, but everybody knows Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Yeah, and I was just going to say that, you know, the, the um, I guess the, the, the growth of the, or the, the, the perspective and the, the time that's been spent by these overseas companies coming into the Australian just everyday life, like your Facebooks and your Googles and now Amazon somewhat. Um, we're sitting in a WeWork at the moment, but that might not be around for the next, in the next six months. Um, so that, that obviously then means that, you know, for yourself as a content creator, you, you need to hit those marks now. You need to be, you know, reflecting people's thoughts on those stocks because, you know, they're, they're more and more coming into the psyche of, of the average Australian, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's also interesting um, seeing things coming the other way as well is the global managers coming into Australia. Right. Um, I think probably the most high-profile one recently has been uh, Glaucus or Bonitas as they're uh, known as now, who have issued a number of you know very public short sale reports mm. on some relatively well known Australian companies, mm. and I think it's a I think it's an interesting dynamic that it seems to me that global managers are starting to pay a little bit more attention to Australia at the same time that Australians and Australian managers are paying more attention overseas, and mm. I think it probably comes back to that same issue of globalization that yep. you were talking about before. Mm. Yeah, but there's, I guess, in a way, there's sort of this part where um, most of the time you pick up the the local newspapers, you still don't see, oh, Microsoft did whatever, or or Apple, or actually Apple and Google, you maybe might see it, but but beyond those sort of top couple, it generally it fades away pretty quickly. So Johnson and Johnson, for example, yeah, the likelihood of reading about that in the in the fin anywhere near the front pages or or, or the Age or the, the Sydney Morning Herald is is pretty low. Um, I guess. Is that an area where you see you, know, you might have an advantage or is this one or you're looking to grow it or is it more of a – because it's, it's hard to know where the push-pull comes from. You only get the – you get more more eyeballs wanting to see this stuff when they see it in their in their local newspapers or or is it more that, look, if they do want to see that stuff, they're going to go to the Wall Street Journal or they're going to go to the Financial Times and so let's sort of play in our space and – we kind of let the audience tell us what they're interested in as much as we can. Mm. Uh, obviously, being a digital publication, we've got much better idea what people are reading than you would have in an old school newspaper. Mm. So yeah. we see the headlines and the topics that people engage with. Yep. And although we try not to just serve them up, that you know, we don't just want to be. Well, that's right. You can't giving just, them lists of stocks, yeah, you know. You don't, be, you don't want to be BuzzFeed. No, yeah, exactly, like, so exactly, go, exactly go what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, we try to give people what they're interested in. So mm. if people are interested in Apple and Google mm. and Facebook, then we'll serve up more of them. In my experience, there's a limited interest in it. Mm. People do want to see a bit of... Oh, sorry. Uh, people do want to see a bit of it, mm. but they generally don't... It's not going to be the you know, the meat and potatoes of their of their mm. investing media diet. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Mm. Um, and, I guess, and I guess going back to the whole um, focus on overseas and even now, we've got, you know, Australia, uh, Australian markets at all-time highs, 
overseas US markets at all time highs as well. So it leads, it leads me to the next question of um, the best of the stock market bulls. So I guess, uh, like, who do you think, I guess, in, in your panel of, of recent... Uh, yeah, actually, because I frame this, frame this another way. We've been relatively bearish, I guess, in terms of what we've been looking at um, and, and looking at the, the valuation. So where markets are is one thing, but but making sure, you know, if the valuations start getting stretched and the earnings isn't coming through, that's where we start to get concerned. And we're, so we're sort of, uh, we're always looking for people who challenge our views. And, and I guess... Um, it is. It does seem to me that there's more and more bears certainly coming out at the moment. Um, but there's always two sides to a story, and, and yeah, there are reasons for, for markets to, to keep going up. And I guess of the of the people you look at, you know, who's got the best reason in terms of the that you know, sits with you in terms of and, and the arguments they're using to, to why. Yeah, I certainly identify with that. My uh, my own personal you know uh, inclination is towards one one of bearishness, but then you know I'm consciously aware of the fact that most bears are wrong most of the time yep. and so I, I have to con- constantly check myself and you know i'm not sometimes i don't always act the way that i feel hmm. if that makes sense yep. um but to answer your question uh it's funny that you that you open the question with discussing indices at all-time high because w- hmm. the first person that i'm going to mention he mentions that as being one of the reasons to be bullish hmm. and so that's ben griffiths from ellie griffiths group yep uh, so he presented at Livewire recently, and he's written a couple of articles recently uh, that were quite bullish. So one of his points is that indices are at all-time highs and credit markets are b- benign. And when you've got those two ingredients together, generally markets go up. Because as we, as you know, most of the time, uh, equity markets are... <laughs> and most of the time, they're at all-time highs too, yeah. you know. Um they, when when you're in a bull market, particularly when you've been in a, in one for a long time, you're going to be setting new all time highs all the time. Mm. Um, he also quotes the Goldman Sachs FCI, the Financial Conditions Index, which he said has been loosening for most of the year. Uh, I would I don't actually have access to that index myself, but I would imagine it was probably coming from a very a, a place of extreme tightness at the start of the year mm. with the, you know, the Fed was raising and expectations were that the Fed would continue raising. And I believe equity prices are also an, imp- an input to that index, I think. Mm. Um, so I'm guessing the, the fall in equity prices would have, at the end of last year, would have affected that too. Uh, he also makes a point which uh, obviously people are moving up the risk scale there is no no alternative. You've got to invest your money somewhere. Mm. People are getting zero to one percent on cash. Uh, they're getting one percent usually on bonds. If you're lucky, getting one percent on cash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, if you, there's still high interest savings. Well, no. I I feel like we should get rid of the name high interest savings account. It just <laughs> yeah, seems like right. a misnomer these days. The, uh, the, not the, zero. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the will start pinging people on it fairly yeah, soon. I, I reckon. Equities, you're getting, you know, 4% in Australia, plus they're fully frank dividends in a lot of cases. So people are moving up the risk curve. I find that an interesting point, though, because I think you could equally use that as a point to justify a bear case. Mm. In fact, I have heard it being used to justify bear cases a lot. So, Mm. uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, people are still getting more money. There's always going to be money flowing into asset somewhere mm. and it's got to go somewhere mm. and uh and his final point was that investors are broadly very bearish which yeah. i think is a fair point i think that's a very good point um mm. and that's- usually investors are very bullish before a crash yeah so that and i actually think that's the strongest point that he makes personally yeah i, I agree i mean the thing that worries me most is that i'd love to see a whole bunch of other people saying this is fantastic look how good the markets are you know this is yeah, the last chance to jump in, you know, and then yeah. Whereas, um, I think we, uh, we yeah, we're the same. We the fact that so many people come out and say it, you sort of go, well, how often does the market crash? When everyone says, hey, look out, the market's about to crash. Yeah, yeah they're, all, yeah. they're all prepared. The shoe sign, the shoe shine is saying, put your money in under the bed rather than put it in the market. It's probably not a good. It's a yeah. reverse dichotomy. <laughs> Phil uh, Phil King from Regal Funds Management made the point at, again at Livewire Live that there's the old story of when your taxi driver tells you to it starts giving you stop picks yep. it's time to get out of the market well he said he was in an uber a few weeks ago and his uber driver told him that he that he'd recently sold all his shares because he thought the market was overvalued <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go 
Yeah. <laughs> All right, next point. We've got uh, the your one, David. Oh, RBA. Yeah. So the same type of same type of thoughts in terms of um, you know who do you think's got the most interesting sort of views on on interest rates at the moment. Well, look. I'll be completely honest with you. Interest rates, in terms of particularly cash rates, is not something that I, and particularly forecasting them, is not something I follow super closely. Mm. I don't, as an investor, I don't feel like I get a huge amount of value out of whether I can accurately predict when and in which direction and by how much the next RBA move or uh, the next Fed move is going to be. There's also... You know, from a content person's perspective, there's not a huge amount of interest in the topic on a regular basis, and the mainstream newspapers usually cover it really well. Mm. Uh, you know, you go into the AFR, and it's not hard to find, you know, five different an article with five different economists all giving their view. And for, on three a, of them from the same bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and yeah. for me, I, I always ask the question, you know, what what value is is there in this for me as an investor, or if I'm got my editor hat on, mm. it's what value is this is there for the audience mm. uh, to get out of this? And I find predicting the future direction of rates is not something that get a massive amount of value out of. Mm. That being said, uh, there is one uh, bond fund manager that I would call out as having generally quite interesting views on interest rates, if you'll excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Charlie Jamison from Jamison Coot Bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's always very insightful. He's a really good presenter and he tells great stories, but he's also pretty good at being right, which is, <laughs> is important too. Um, you know, he's a really experienced investor and, uh, and I think, you know, I, I find... I always walk away after having listened to him or even having interviewed him. I feel like I've, I've learned something new. Um, uh, by way of an example, last time I interviewed him, I asked him the question, you know, there's $14 trillion, I think it's now 17, but uh, $14 trillion of negative yielding bonds around the world. Uh, this is crazy, right? Mm. Not in those exact words, but mm. that was roughly the question. And and he explained to me that for a foreign currency investor, so if you're an Australian investor and you're invest buying, say, a, a, a German Bund, mm. uh, you'll generally enter into a currency swap arrangement in order to do so, uh, which also involves swapping the interest rates. Mm. And as a result, because it's a negative interest rate on the uh, on cash in, in the in the ECB, yep. you're actually getting paid that, but you're also getting paid the cash rate on the Australian because that's positive, mm. and the combination of the of the dual yield you get off the interest rate swap and the currency swap uh, actually means that you get a positive yield off some of these bonds mm. that look like they have well they do have negative nominal yields, yeah. but for a foreign currency investor who invests in a currency swap. Mm they can actually have a positive yield. I thought that was just really interesting. It wasn't mm. something I'd ever considered before. Um, you know, for the average investor, it's who thinks about currency swaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so on that point, Damien, we're going to see any negative paying boons in the uh, nucleus wealth portfolios? No, I don't, I don't think it's something we're, we're planning on. I mean, my, my, my take on international investment, and, and I, I, I take your point um, for, for professional managers, you know, it is, it is something you can invest in. I think for some of the smaller accounts, and we run separately managed accounts where we put everyone's everyone owns the actual securities, and so it is a lot harder to do swaps and all those types of things. But the other thing you find with when you start buying international bonds is you go, well, um, you end up with roughly the same yield as if you had bought an Australian bond because you, that's the way the swap. Otherwise, there's arbitrage, so that's what that, the swaps all work. And so what we find is uh, saying, well, just a minute, all I've done is I could have just bought the Australian one, but what I've done is a complicated swap, and I've picked up a few extra basis points and got a German one. But if something goes wrong, Germany is probably a bad example. Maybe a Spanish bond, or if something goes wrong and they default, when companies, when countries default, they don't default on their local people first. Mm. That's the last ones because those people vote. Whereas you try and, you know, Argentina is a great example. You know, you def- default on your foreign borrower. So I'm just almost, I'm worried with those when when you start doing that. You, yeah, you might do a complicated swap. You pick up a few extra points, but you've just picked up all this extra risk you didn't have and you could have just bought the Aussie ones. And yeah. So what's your take on the uh, Argentinian 100-year bond then? Uh, is that not, is that going to be one that's going to be appearing? A, in not the- a buyer, no. <laughs> not, not a buyer of that one. But, but the other, I mean, the other point, I guess, I like on the, on the RPA stuff, I find anyway, is that there is a huge following in Australia 
among all those people, as you said, who who write for all these um, for all these Aussie banks, and the Aussie banks tend to have three or four economists. I wasn't joking when I said you know three three from the same one. They all with nuanced views about it. So you're like, oh, we're wheeling out to one guy. Well, let's 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 wheel out this view, and we wheel out to somebody else. Let's wheel out a different view, and and, and make a trade. Um, but the uh, there's there's a, there's so much focus on the what are they going to do next week? What are they going to do next week? Is like as opposed to well, what should they be doing over the next eighteen months? Mm. And, and if they keep doing what they're doing at the moment, what's that going to do to the economy? Forget whether they cut next week or whether they wait a month or two months or whatever it is. It's not a in the end, unless you're trading bonds and very highly leveraged at the, at the <laughs> near end bonds, you're not going to make any money from that. Yeah. So you know, I'm certainly with you in terms of. Um, we, we get more than enough interest rate commentary in, in Australia in our newspapers to... <laughs> yeah. to well, and it's so that. directly linked to house prices, which is everyone's favourite topic, that it's a, you know, it's a go-to for the mainstay media, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and I wonder whether that's, well, that's almost a, a reason why you get a, a lot more focus in Australia than what you do overseas mm. on it, um, because that same interest from the, the average person in the street, because you're like, yes, if they cut rates, I... I get an extra 50 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month straight away. <laughs> I've got to be honest, if I was in Denmark, I'd be pretty interested in the in the rates that they had there on their on their home. Is it Denmark that had Denmark, the issue? Got the negative rates, yeah. yeah. Having said that, I think the, the trick there was um, there are fees on the account. And of so course, you, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you might think you're getting negative rates, but basically you're getting negative rates which offset the fees and you end up basically, yeah. Hey, still 0% <laughs> but, on, an, but on a still, mortgage ain't bad. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. Yes. Very good. Okay, um, and so we might just roll into a reflection on a uh, on your most interesting interviewee over over the years. Obviously, you've, you've run into some fairly interesting uh, characters in Australian finance. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts there. Look, I'm going to make it difficult for you. I can't give you one. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> it doesn't need to be one. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any ones in particular? That yeah, you find are always entertaining. And, and I guess there's a difference between somebody who's entertaining in terms of, hey, these guys got some really interesting views. Might be wrong, as you said. That some of those there's people like you spoke about, uh, Charlie Jamison, as being not only having interesting views but often being right, which is which is a good thing. But there are people out there I find who are consistently wrong but consistently come up with actually quite interesting things and every now and again they, they score one fantastically well and it is worth reading those people just for the fact that they've got a different view to everyone else. Mm. Yeah. yeah, look, I, the interviews I find the most interesting personally are the ones where I think there's been some really valuable learning op- opportunities. So I'm, I'm less interested in you know what their stock picks are and more interested in what they told me about how they came to that stock pick, if mm. that makes sense. Yep. Uh, and also, I really enjoy speaking to people that don't speak to the media very often. Yep. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That sounds awfully like, yes, I like, I like meeting younger people of my preferred sex because they're not, they're not that experienced and I can take advantage of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it in that way at all. Look, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of, People who are out there in the media a lot, yeah. uh, and we hear a lot of their views. But there's also some incredibly talented investors that the average person who doesn't work in this industry has probably never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my, my one of my favourite examples on that point is Peter Cooper. Before I started working in the in this industry, I actually didn't know who Peter Cooper was. Um, for the sake of the people listening, he runs a company called Cooper Investors. Uh, they've got about 12 or $13 billion of funds under management. Um, it's a little boutique out of Melbourne. Um, they've got some really, really talented fund managers. And uh, Peter himself is one of the most experienced uh, investors in, in in the country, honestly. Uh, and he doesn't do a lot of interviews, especially in-depth interviews. Mm. So I was really lucky to get to sit down with him for the best part of an hour and just pick his brain as to what he thinks, how he thinks about the world and how he thinks about investing. Um, if I had to pick a, a single thing that I thought was most interesting that came out of that, he made the point that a large part of the alpha he's generated over the past 20 years has been because of falling interest rates and his, and his understanding of the opportunities that that provided. He made a lot of money off things like banks and, mm. um, you know, insurance companies, companies that were on the way down mm. exposed to falling rates. Uh, I think it's f- safe to say, I hope it's safe to say that, uh, that, that, that 
theme has probably played out yep. at this point. I don't think... Look, rates might go a little bit lower. I don't think they're going to go another 10% lower. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I, I feel pretty confident in saying that, but yeah. I'm probably going to look like an idiot in 10 years' time now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his, his point was that his, you know, his big idea for the next 20 years, the big kind of structural change that is happening that everybody's aware of, but which you can still make money off nonetheless is is demographic changes and the aging population mm. and you know there's so many different ways that you can benefit from an aging population whether it be uh, you know in obvious ones like investing in aged care uh there's a lot there's a lot less obvious ones as well um Maybe you want to be short private health insurers. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there's probably there's probably some unusual ones out there that that none of us have thought of yet. But uh, you know that you can't avoid the fact that populations are aging. Mm. Not just from uh, you know people are living longer at, at at the end, but also you've got the weight of people coming into that later stage of life the baby boomers and they're um, often the richest uh, sector of the <laughs> section yeah. of the age bracket as well so. yeah it's a good point <laughs> yep uh and there's a lot of services and things that they're gonna need and chances are it's probably not baked into every stock price around the world mm. so if you look for those opportunities it could be a very good hunting ground i think Okay, fantastic. Mm. And on the flip side... Um, uh, oh, sorry, but oh, any, sorry. any others sort of in the interviewing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so another one I really enjoyed was, uh, earlier this year was Robert Milner from Washington H. Sol Pattinson. Uh, so Sol Pattinson's the... one. I think it's the oldest listed company in Australia. They've been around for well over 100 years. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows them for their chain of pharmacists but it's actually a pretty a relatively small part of their business they own uh they've got a huge investment portfolio that includes things like tpg they were an early investor in tpg Mm. uh they were um uh they own coal assets they own um oh oh, yes of course yes of course brickworks um Mm. and brickworks also owns a bit of them uh and They've also, you know, they've got a whole portfolio of earlier stage investments as well, and they own property. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting portfolio that doesn't look a lot like anybody else's portfolio out there that I've seen. Mm. <laughs> um, and he's got a great track record. I mean, the company has, I think, is every year for the past uh, hundred years, I think they've paid a dividend. I think that's right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and they've increased it every every year for the past 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, dividend growth is a wonderful thing. And if you can come up with a, a formula that allows you to keep growing dividends year on year on year. You then, make a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Um, so flipping it around, the King Contarian. So um, who have you got uh, from a uh, an opposition sort of viewpoint? So have you got any of your favourite Contrarians that you like to call in on to to balance out a, a big bull case? Yeah, look, there's uh, look. I don't know if they're Contrarians in the sense of them being super bearish, uh, but they are Contrarians in you know fundamentally at heart. They okay. like to be. They like to buy things that everybody else hates and they like to avoid things that people like. Yep. Uh, so there's a couple of, of fund managers that I, I think do a really great job and I did actually mention them earlier. Uh, one is Alan Gray. Uh, so they they were founded in South Africa uh, and came to Australia, I think, 10 or 15 years or so ago. Uh, they've got a really talented team, but they... A lot of people talk about being value investors and about being contrarian. These these guys really, really are. And it, it, it feels like it's just fundamentally part of their DNA. <laughs> like they, I, I don't want to say almost to a fault because I don't, they, they, they have to be, they have to be contrarian. Mm. Now, I mean, that, that can be a danger sometimes, I think. Um, but I think they also recognize that. But, you know, they were... They've been invested in AMP for quite some time and they were happy being publicly long AMP as everything was going well. Now, that hasn't played out well for them yet, but mm. they've got plenty of older examples of, of you know, similar situations, which when you're patient, they do play out. They were, they were in Telstra when that was right down in the dumps. I think that's recovered quite a bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, 
so, you know, at that large cap end of the market, they have, you know, they have really high conviction and they do deep research. They're not always going to get it right. I think, you know, being a contrarian investor and investing in, you know, what uh, a lot of the time... Extreme value. Falling, falling yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> you're going to get some wrong, but you can also make some very large returns on the ones that you do get right. So mm. if you can get, you know, six out of 10 right, or maybe you don't even need to get six out of 10 right. If you can make 200% on the ones that you yeah. that you get right and only lose 30 or 40% on the ones you get wrong, then even a 50% strike rate looks pretty good. Yep. Uh, the other one, so that's, I guess, at the large cap end of the market more at the small cap end of the market, uh, forager funds and Steve Johnson in particular, uh, they, again, they really like buying some <laughs> some stuff that ev- even when I look at it, I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's nasty looking. Um, but, um, you know, it's worked well for them over the years. They've had a bit of, you know, it's been a bit of a struggle for them the last 12 or 18 months, but I don't think they're unique in that regards. I think mm. there's a lot of... A lot of really talented fund managers out there that that have had a tough time lately. But um, I'm kind of of the view that underperformance is a necessary precondition for outperformance. Okay. If yep. you if you're not prepared to Stick underperform, your neck out. Yeah, yeah. If you're not prepared to underperform from time to time, then you're not going to outperform. Yep. If you're not prepared to underperform from time to time, go buy an index. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're going to index hard <laughs> and not stick your neck out, yeah. then um, yeah, how long are you going to last? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they're, they're probably the two the two that I would call out as being, you know, the contrarians that I, I, I really like to hear from. Okay, mm-hmm. very good. Yeah. I don't, uh, one of the things I note, and this is not just you guys, this is sort of a bit of a global across all media, is you don't really hear much from the superannuation funds. So you hear from the managers below, but the and I guess all the asset consultants. So you sort of have this part where so much of Australian money uh, is invested through super funds, and the people who run the funds you very very rarely hear from. And when you do hear from them, it tends to be um, this guy was the best over this period, and and he says, oh yeah, let me tell you what I did last year. And then you're like, well, that's great, but what are you doing next year? It's like, well, <laughs> the guy didn't ask because. Yeah, or it wasn't wasn't offered. Um, do you hear much from them, or do, what do you think? How do you put down the the silence you hear from that area? It seems to be very much their own choice. Mm. Uh, I think that people do want to hear from them, but they don't seem to want to talk to the media very much. And uh, and, and particularly now, where it sounds like they're internalising so much more of their funds under which management, is, which you know, is so, more important. Yeah. So yeah. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> I'd say if you know, I guess one of the things we we find we're picking up a lot of super clients from industry funds because we do the full transparency and we'll tell you exactly what's going on and all that type of stuff. And I find it, I just find it's interesting that, um, as you said, they're internalizing more and, and making less out there, but, but at the same time, not offering anything to... Yeah, look, I don't have a good explanation for you as to why they don't want to talk to the media. It seems to me to make sense to want to talk to the media. I mean, they... Brand awareness and... and uh, is going to help them with with getting fund flows. It's basically free marketing for them, yeah. being out there in the media, mm. and uh, and it also helps their investors better understand their strategies. Mm. So, from my perspective, obviously I'm biased, uh, but I think you know it would make sense, particularly for these big ones that are, um, you know, starting to move their investment management in house mm. to to be a bit more active in the media and talk a bit more, not just about what they have done, mm. but what, what, what they're do. positioned for in the future. So mm. if the chief investment officer of uh, Australian Super is listening, feel free to give me a call. I was going to say, <laughs> we'll throw out the gauntlet to Mr. Silk if you're listening in to, um, to give Patrick a call. I'm sure he'd love to take that call. So I do yeah. see Ian Silk out on the street sometimes. He's a very difficult person to miss. He's very distinctive. Isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just needs a 10-gallon hat, I reckon. But anyway, it's a, that's a whopping moustache. Um, so we might just finish up too. Just um, run quickly over a, a must-read list, if you, if you will. Obviously, you're a very well-read guy. So um, what would you like to share with our listeners? As, um, and, and I guess, uh, can I give you a little bit more guidance on that as yeah. well? So I'm interested in hearing what your, um, yeah, so, that, so there's obviously a lot of Australian people who are on your list. And so mm-hmm. you want to give us those ones, but I guess globally, if there's ones where you're saying, well, you know, okay, I, when I wake up in the morning, I've got my RSS feed or my newspapers and, and these are the, the four or five places I find I, I have to get my, my feed from. Uh, 
I'll be honest, I actually prepared for this thinking that you wanted books. Oh, so okay. All right. I, I've prepared I books, but that yeah. being said, uh, I could probably come up with a, a, a couple of things that are worth reading um, on the internet. So yes. uh, one I would say would be uh, Barry Ritholtz. Yep. Uh, he's got a great podcast yep. and he's got a great website. Um, uh, I'm blanked. Retail, uh, retail wealth, wealth, wealth yeah. management, the big yeah. picture. Yeah, yeah. Picture. Thank you. The big picture. That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah. Um, I've always enjoyed reading his content. It's not technically business content, but I would also say Farnham Street is a great one that's worth reading. Um, he talks a lot about how to learn, how to absorb information. It's mm-hmm. it's really really different. Um, he's he is a keen investor. Farnham Street is a reference to Warren Buffett because that's where the Berkshire offices are uh, on right. Farnham Street. Um, but he, I guess, he focuses more on the the psycho- psychological side of things. Yep. Um, that's that's definitely worth reading. Um, and that's, that sounds similar to Barry, isn't it? Like Barry spends a lot of time talking about how investors can make mistakes and how your brain works against you. For, you know, your natural instinct is is often wrong. For, for a lot of these things. So, yeah. Mm. So, it's well, obviously a bit of a bent you have for, for It those. is. And the first book that I'm going to uh, mention is very much along that same line as well, yeah. uh, which is The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks. Yep. Uh, I'd say that, that along with One Up on Wall Street, are probably the two books that have influenced me most as an investor. Mm. Um, the Most Important Thing talks a lot about, you know, where does alpha come from? How should you, how should you think? as an investor and I feel like that is you know for the average person who wants to invest Mm. you can't get an informational advantage Mm. you know you are not going to be able to take a headline and act on it quicker than an algorithm or a professional trader is Mm. yeah so where can you where can you get an advantage and the only and I think that the best place for the average person to get an advantage is a psychological advantage Mm. you know fund managers for example uh usually have to report monthly or quarterly figures Mm. which means that they have career risk to worry about which is why they tend to hug indexes Mm. um if you're aware of that bias then maybe you don't fall victim to some of the same traps maybe you can take a longer term perspective than that than a fund manager might be able to because you don't have investors knocking on your door going, why is, why, why is this mm. stock going down? And, and it's, a, it's a J, I, I look at this all the time. You know, there's the, the J-shaped companies where you're like, look, I can see where there's going to be bad news for the next six, nine, 12 months. But then after that, I can see where things, all these things are going to clear and all of a sudden the, you know, the, the, you're the Stephen Bradbury and everyone's going to fall over in front of you and off you, off you scoot through the middle. But right now you're at the back of the pack. And it's a question about saying, okay, when do you, when do you try and time it? Do you try and get to the bottom or, or do, you, do you buy it now and then have to, have to excuse it for the next 18 months in your portfolio? And, and investors um, tend not to be that forgiving of anything that goes down. And so, yeah, it's a, I can see where, you know, absolutely for, a, for an individual investor, the only problem with that obviously is when, when you pick those because you're like, yeah, I think I'm going to lose money for 18 months or, or maybe, and then, then it's going to come good and the ones that don't come good and, you just <laughs> follow down. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Waste, no. You've wasted eighteen months owning something that's only going to go down even further. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it, and it's it's mm. it's a tough one. But I, the problem with waiting until things get better is that the opportunities usually pass by then. Absolutely. So un, unless you're willing to take that risk, and mm. you've just, I guess, you've just got to have conviction. I mean, it, mm. you know, we were talking a lot before about uh, reading other people's research, and that's good, but. You, you know, no matter how much other people's research you read, you've, you've got to do your own. Yeah. And, you know, a fund manager might tell you in their, in, in a, a story on Livewire that th- they think this stock is a great buy. They're not going to tell you when it's time to sell it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you've got to understand the company well enough and understand the thesis well enough to know when it's broken. Mm. You know, we've, we've asked this question on Livewire so many times of, uh, you know, how do you know when to sell a stock? And, Almost without fail, the answer is when your thesis is broken. Yeah, okay. But if you're relying on somebody else's thesis and you don't properly understand that thesis, how are you going to know when it's broken? Yep. Yeah. And, and I think most of the research as well says uh, most fund managers are very good at buying stocks, but where they lose out is um, 
selling stocks and that's mm. fund managers who who do this for a day for a living so then you're gonna say okay now you gotta to go to an amateur who's doing it at home you know the same same type of thing yeah yeah, yeah it's tough that's where we have and then our, and our our plug again for us is we what we tend to do is use the quant for that process is to say well because the um we run a sort of quality value screen and i find that the, the most important thing for me is often you might go oh look here's an average quality stock but i want to buy it because it's really 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 cheap and so you buy it, next thing you know, the stock's doubled. And you start going, hey, maybe it is an average quality. It's just up, it's just doubled, you know. <laughs> maybe it's really good quality. I just didn't, you know. And that's where people get stuck on the, where you, at least the quant goes, no, 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 buddy. Look, the numbers haven't changed. This hasn't changed. Or, you know, something's got only slightly better. It's still only average quality, you know. Time to surf it type thing mm, as opposed yeah. to, you, if you stick too much with a, your own gut and your own feeling, you love those stocks. Yeah. Whereas I've got a lot more sympathy for a stock that's very high quality, and you say, yeah, okay, I bought that and it's doubled. Okay, but it's still really high quality. Now it's got a lot more scope to run and you know all that type of thing is if it's still getting good returns on investment. Yeah. yeah, I think I take somewhat of a similar approach myself in that I let my portfolio sizes tell me when it's time to sell something. Mm, okay. you know, if I start seeing something that's 7, 8, 9, 10% of my portfolio, I'm going, all right, you know, maybe I should take some money off the table here. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll just finish my, my book list. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I did briefly mention one up on Wall Street. Um, that is uh, definitely definitely worth a read. Peter Lynch is absolutely one of the best fund managers that has ever been in the business. Hmm. Uh, he achieved, I think it's 29% per annum over 19 years, uh, which is just outstanding. I mean, 30%, it's just crazy. <laughs> um, and I think it's a really useful uh, way of thinking about investing for retail investors. You know, he talks... It, 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 it's look it's very much a product of its time it's a book that was written in the early 90s and you can tell that when you're reading it yeah. um, but i think there's some really valuable information in there yeah. um and one last one i'll mention i wanted to uh i wanted to mention an australian author mm. uh and uh i've had him on my show twice uh roger montgomery wrote a book called valuable and i think it's again it's 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 a really practical book that talks about australian examples so i think for people who want to, you know, we were talking earlier about how people always identify with things that are close to home. Yep. You know, that he talks about stocks that you're going to know. Mm. You know, he talks about JB Hi-Fi and ABC Learning and he gives practical examples. Um, and it's, it's nice and straightforward, easy to understand. And it gives you a, I think, you know, one of the things that is really good out of it is that it gives you a valuation framework mm. that is, I think, better than a, using price-to-earnings ratios but way, way, way more practical and easy to do than a discounted cash flow. Yep. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, and so for the handful of listeners that haven't heard of Livewire, how, uh, how do our followers get in touch with you and, and follow your work, Patrick? Uh, livewiremarkets.com. Uh, if you go on there, you'll find all my content on there and from hundreds of other authors. Uh, you can also find my podcast, uh, The Rules of Investing. It's on Apple Podcasts, sorry, I almost called it iTunes. Um, Apple Podcasts, it's on Google Podcasts, it's on Spotify, uh, and it's on Stitcher. Um, and we're also on YouTube, so Livewire Markets on YouTube. So, yeah. Fantastic. All right. And uh, I, I often call it iTunes anyway, mate, so don't worry about it. I, <laughs> I, I'm not an Apple uh, user, so to me it's always going to be iTunes. But anyway, <laughs> thanks very much for your time. It was great spending an hour with you today, and uh, we'll look forward to getting you on board again soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return, we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers. <laughs>